Would you take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6? Looks like we have the notes that will be up on the screen too. I really appreciate the work of our sound team at times like this. As you can imagine when you come and you expect everything to be there and it's different. It's a little bit of a stressful moment to try and get that all put in again. So we'll see how it goes. Romans chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 14. And I'd like to read that for us as we begin. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Let's pray. Father, these passages of Scripture that we are looking at in Romans, you know, are so foundational for us as believers. And I pray that the truth that is contained here, the power that you have given to us through the Holy Spirit, would indeed change the life of each one who is present here. We give you thanks for these wonderful gifts that have come to us through Christ. Help us to understand your word and to apply it to our life. Amen. Well, today we come to what I believe is one of the great passages in all of Scripture. It is a passage that talks about the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. And if we want to understand how to live the Christian life, how are we to go about this relationship with Christ, then we need to understand passages like Romans 6. In fact, Pastor Ron and I were talking this week, and if you took Romans chapters 4 to 8 and chapter 12, and you take the book of Ephesians, and you take the end of Galatians chapters 5 and 6 that talk about walking in the Spirit, those passages are crucial to our understanding of how to live as Christians, to know what God has made available to us. Chuck Swindoll calls this chapter in Romans the Christian's Emancipation Proclamation because it talks about the freedom that we have in Christ. He said, Here, as in no other section of Scripture, is this foundational truth of our liberty, 
our freedom from Satan's intimidation and sin's domination. And he said it's here that all young Christians should spend their first hours in the Bible. Not in passages that tell us what to do once we sin, like 1 John 1.9, or how to restore fellowship, as important as that is for us to understand. But no, it's here the believer discovers their freedom from sin's control and how to live on that victorious level above fear and guilt and shame and defeat. You see, there are three ways that people sometimes try to live the Christian life that are all really doomed to failure and defeat. Some people approach the Christian life through what is called moralism. They want to reduce Christianity to a set of moral principles. It's things like, you know, be a good person or follow Jesus' example. Uh, Even non-Christians try to do this with Christianity. They want to say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. He had some very fine things to say. And, you know, if we just practice the golden rule, for example, this would be a better place. Well, that would be helpful, but it's not going to change the heart. But there's more to Christianity than just some nice moral principles. And if we try to live the Christian life in our own strength, we are going to fail. Some Christians practice what is called legalism. Not intentionally, but what legalism does is that it adds to Christianity a set of do's and don'ts that go beyond what Scripture says. They respect the Bible, but they say, if God said don't do this, well then we want to be very careful, and so we're going to make the fence a little bit broader and wider. And they add all these things that we are not to do. It's what the Pharisees did when they came to the Scripture and they imposed their man-made rules on those believers at that time. And what does legalism do? Legalism robs Christians of their freedom and joy. And when people fall into legalism, they become critical and judgmental of one another because they think that everybody else should live by their standards rather than following what the Scripture has said. And on the other side, Christians can fall into what is called license. And license goes too far the other way, and it abuses grace. It basically says that almost anything goes. And there are people who continue to live in sin and justify that as though that's okay because Christ has forgiven us. And they don't understand holiness and what the Christian life really is about. In fact, in history, there have been some uh, terrible abuses of that. There was a man named Rasputin who was a Russian monk who thought that and taught that uh, by sinning and asking for forgiveness over and over again, we were actually glorifying God more. He would be one of those individuals that Paul would address here. When they asked the question, what shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul says, God forbid, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? It was inconceivable to him that someone would ask that kind of question. Paul had indeed been preaching this gospel of grace and he knew that it is something that could be misunderstood. It it sounds in a sense too easy to be able to say that if you will come to Christ and repent of your sins that He will forgive you and you will be justified in the sight of God. Come by faith and receive this gift that is graciously given. 
And some thought, Paul, people are going to take advantage of that. They're going to just continue to live in sin as though that doesn't matter. And Paul says, God forbid. Don't you understand what has happened when we come to faith in Jesus Christ? So how do we live the Christian life? Well, this verse that we've looked at before in Romans 1.17 really is the theme. We have it up here on both sides now in the banner. That the righteous will live by faith. We are saved by faith in Christ and we are to live the Christian life by faith. We don't go back to the law because we are under grace. And we are to walk in the Spirit, keeping our eyes on Christ as we seek to live this life for Him. There are four key words in Romans 6 that can help us to understand what Paul is saying here. And they are the words know and count and offer and obey. Now that's in the NIV translation, the New International Version. Some of you may have different versions that have a slightly different word. But you can find that. And if you were to go through and underline those verses in your text all the way through, you would have a very good sense of what Paul is saying here. He is telling us that there are some things that we need to know. We'll see that in verses 3, 6, and 9. Things that are foundational truth. He's telling us that there is something we need to count on or consider in verse 11. And then there are two things that we must do as we offer ourselves to God and choose to obey Him. And we'll see that in verses 12 and 13 and 15 and through 19 at the end. So what is it that God wants us to know? Well, number one, He wants us to know that we have a new identity in Christ. We see that in verses 3 and 4. He says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We were united with Christ through baptism. Now, I want to ask you the question, which baptism is he talking about? Is he talking about spiritual baptism or is he talking about water baptism here? I used to think that it was not water baptism that was being referred to in this passage. In fact, I have heard commentators say there's no water in Romans 6. There is indeed a spiritual truth here that's being talked about. And yet the word Paul uses here, baptizo, is the word he uses for water baptism everybody else, everywhere else. So what's going on here? I think that what we have here is Paul is using the word baptism as a figure of speech. It's called a synecdoche. It's where one part stands for the whole. And the reason I think it's a figure of speech that's being used that way is that because in the New Testament... The New Testament writers did not know about an unbaptized believer. You believed and you were baptized. Everybody who believed did that. And so baptism, in a sense, stands for this whole conversion experience that a new believer had. And there were four elements of that conversion experience. There was faith in Christ. There was repentance, a turning away from sin. There was this receiving of the Holy Spirit, this gift of God when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And there was water baptism. And all of that was part of the same experience. And that's why in the Gospels, for example, and also in the book of Acts, 
you'll have times when the apostles will say, Believe and be baptized, and you shall be saved. And other times where they'll say, Repent and be baptized, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they just simply say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Because they could use any of those terms to describe that conversion experience because it was all part of that. We are to come and place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We are to repent or turn away from our sins. That's a part of this. We are to trust in Christ and He's the one who baptizes us spiritually, baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And water baptism is a symbol of that. Water baptism is the sign and seal of something very important that takes place when we place our faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord. We are united with Christ in His death and resurrection. We become one with Him. And it is in this sense that Paul is talking about what has happened here to every believer who has trusted in Christ. And he says, don't you know that when we were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into His death, and we were buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory, or you could say through the power of the Father, we too may live a new life. That's what water baptism is intended to symbolize. Our unity with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. Remember last week we talked about Adam and our relationship with him and how Adam stood as a representative of the human race. And in this Hebrew concept of solidarity, when Adam sinned, we sinned. We were all guilty. We're guilty not only because we are united with Adam, though, but we are guilty also because we do individually sin. There is a sense in which that is also true with Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, on the one side He died alone as our substitute for sin. And He went to that cross alone. The abuses He suffered, He suffered alone. And He chose to do that willingly, voluntarily, as He gave Himself as that sacrifice of atonement for our sins. But there is another side to it where Jesus died as our representative. He's the second Adam. He's the one who represented the human race and He died for our sins, for all who would place their faith in Him. And in that sense, when Christ died as our representative, we who believe in Him also died on that cross. And when He rose again, we rose again. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, for example, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Now look at that verse. I mean, that's one of those great verses that every believer ought to have memorized and that you chew on that and you think about that. Because it's true for all of us who have come to place our faith in Jesus Christ. When Christ died, we died. And I have been crucified with Him. And I no longer live, but it is Christ who now dwells and lives in me. And this life I live in the body, I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me.
That is the key to the Christian life. The key to the Christian life is Christ living in me and Christ living in you. We can't do this in our strength, in our own human wisdom. It is not me trying to be a better person. It's not me trying to follow the law. It is understanding and knowing what happened on the cross when Jesus Christ died. And what happened that day that I choose to place my faith in Him. And I die too. And this old self was crucified. It is Christ living in me that makes all the difference in the world. And that's why Paul went on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I want to say a couple things regarding baptism. I don't often get a chance to preach on it in the text, and so I want to say a couple things about baptism and about what we believe. There are two teachings regarding baptism that I think we want to avoid. And I'm going to state what those are, and I want you to think about them and consider it. Regarding baptism, some churches teach what is called baptismal regeneration. And in particular, baptismal regeneration of infants. And I've been to funerals where I've heard it said by a pastor or someone up front that uh, it was almost irregardless of how the person had lived, if they had been baptized as an infant, they were saved, and, and that's all you needed to do. I don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. When Peter, in 1 Peter 3.21, says that baptism now saves you, He makes it very clear. He says that it's not the washing of dirt from the body. It's not the water itself that saves you. It is the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It is not baptism that saves. It is faith in Jesus Christ that saves. And it's baptism that symbolizes that faith in Jesus Christ. I, like many of you, I grew up in a tradition where I was baptized as an infant. But I'm thankful for my parents who didn't believe that that was all that needed to be done. That there needed to be a point when either I would, quote, confirm my faith or choose to follow Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and Lord. That's true for all of us. They treated uh, infant baptism in the same way that we do with our parent-child dedication. When a parent comes and brings their child before the Lord and they ask, God to place their hand on that child and to bless them, watch over that boy or girl that they might come to know Christ at a young age. And that's the prayer for all of us that are parents who are believers. We want our children to walk with God, but we know that at some point in their life, they're going to have to make that choice for themselves. Do I believe that Jesus Christ is the one He claims to be? And will I acknowledge my sin and ask Him to be my Savior? Each of us has to come to that point and confess that before God. We practice what is called believer's baptism in our church. We believe that those who have made that profession of faith and come to know Christ should then be baptized in obedience to His command. Because on the other side, there are some churches and some believers that treat baptism as though it is unimportant or unnecessary. When baptism is important, it is a part of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to the disciples when He said, Go and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is a part of that call to come and follow me that someone should choose to identify with Jesus Christ. That's what that word baptism means. It means to immerse or to be identified with someone or something. In this case, with Jesus Christ. And in the Jewish understanding of baptism, it always marked a change in life. Change in direction or in who you are. I like how Douglas Moo in his commentary put it in reference to this. He said, you know, if someone had asked the Apostle Paul, uh, can there be such a thing as an unbaptized believer and would he be saved? He said, I think Paul would say, well, yes, such a person is saved, but why in the world aren't they baptized? It is an important part of our faith and our obedience to choose to express that and publicly acknowledge the commitment that we have made and be identified as a believer in Jesus Christ. So my exhortation to all of you this morning is to consider that and to be baptized if you have not been baptized already. And parents, I want you to talk to your children about baptism as well. We recommend that a child be at least eight years old before they are baptized only because we want them to understand what they are doing. And sometimes those ages of 9 and 10 are even better when a child comes to that point where they understand what it means to accept Christ and to turn from their sin and they now want to be baptized. It's been a beautiful thing. At times we've baptized whole families at one time together when they have affirmed their faith in Jesus Christ. Usually we do it in the summer, but we can do it uh, during the winter too. But if you're interested in that in baptism, please uh, let me know and we will plan for those services coming up. Alright, we have a new identity in Christ. But secondly, this passage also teaches that we have a new freedom. He talks about our union with Christ and the change that takes place when we are joined to Him. And in this section, in verses 5-11, to He tells us that the power of sin has been broken in our life. So that we should no longer be a slave to sin. We have been set free as we sang this morning. In verse 5, he says, Now if we, or if we have been united with him in this death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. What is that old self that was crucified with Christ? Well, I like how John Stott put it. He described the old self as the person we were before we met Christ. When we uh, encourage people to write their personal testimony and do that and lay that out on a timeline, we uh, tell them, I want you to put a cross where it is in your life that you met Jesus Christ on that timeline. What were you like before you met Christ? And what is your life like now after you have met Christ? Because that decisive point was the dividing line in your life. And when you came to know Christ, what Paul says again is that that old man died. That person that you were before you met Christ was crucified and put to death. And you are now a new person in Christ. And that power of sin that was at work in your life has been nailed to the cross. 
John Stott said, It's as though our life, our biography, was written in two volumes. And volume one is the story of the old man, the old self, of me before my conversion. And volume two is the story of the new man, the new self, of me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one, my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner. I deserved to die, and I did die when Christ died. And my punishment was paid for by Jesus Christ at the cross. I died with my substitute with whom I have become one. But volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection. My old life was finished, and my new life to God has begun. That eternal life that is a gift of God is already operative in our body. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, He gave us the Holy Spirit. There is a new power in my life. It is the power of the Holy Spirit who is changing us from the inside out. He's the one who produces in us, again, that fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who enables us to say no to sin. And so sin no longer has the same hold on our life that it once did. That doesn't mean that we won't still struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that there still won't be temptations or trials in this life. It doesn't mean that we still won't experience the weakness of the flesh. That's Romans 7. We're going to come to that where Paul is struggling with sin in his life. And how do you live this this life as a Christian when you thought that, okay... I died with Christ. Doesn't that mean that it should be easy from now on and that everything's over? And some things pass away in our life very quickly, but other things are still part of the fight as we fight to walk with Jesus Christ. Augustine described what happened in this way. He said, When Adam was created, Adam was created with the ability to sin. He had never sinned before, but he had the ability to sin. After the fall... He was unable not to sin because sin had that hold on his life. When Christ was crucified and we died with Him for those who are believers in Him, now we have this new freedom. We are able to not sin in our life. We can choose not to do that. And then the glorified state for which we long, we will not be tempted by sin, nor will we be able to fall into it any more. You see, Jesus has set us free from the penalty of the sin, penalty of sin by dying on the cross and paying that penalty for us. And He has set us free from the power of sin and that that power has been broken in our life. And in the future, we will experience freedom from even the presence of sin. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. I mean, isn't that what we long for? to be free and to have this battle done and to live and be confirmed in that place of righteousness and holiness that we in our heart long for. So how do we experience that in this life? Well, that's what Paul is saying when he exhorts us in verse 11. He said, In the same way now, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider it so and act on it. That's how we put this into practical experience. We choose to live out what is true of us, what Jesus Christ has done. And we recognize I don't have to say 
yes to Satan. I don't have to yield to sin. I can in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit resist sin and say yes to Jesus Christ. And I make that choice every single day. You know, when after the Civil War, the slaves were set free, it took some of them a long time to adjust to what that new freedom meant. Some went back to their slavery, in effect. They didn't know how to live any differently. And sometimes for Christians who have come to faith in Christ and who have been given over into lifelong habits or addictions or struggles, it's hard for them to know how to live. It takes time to be in the Scripture, to be in the Word of God, and to understand these promises and truths. But that's the life that Jesus Christ has given to us, and He is calling us to. And then thirdly, the Bible tells us that we have a new master. In verses 12, excuse me, in verses 12 through 14. He talks about, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law but under grace. Sin desires to be our master. Do you remember the story of Cain and Abel where Cain despised his brother Abel because God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's? And God came to Cain and he saw his anger in his heart and his bitterness and he warned him. He said, be careful because sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to master you. And indeed it did. And sin wants to master. It wants to dominate our life. It's how Satan works. It's a metaphor for how Satan wants to rule our life too. But because we have been set free through our union with Christ, we now have a choice. We have a decision to make. We can let sin reign in our body as Christians and we can be miserable. There's no joy in that. If you can continue to live in sin and not feel miserable, if somebody says, I'm a Christian, and they can continue to live in sin and not feel any shame or guilt in their life at all, they aren't a believer. You are not a Christian if you can do that. But there are Christians who are living in sin and you can see in their life that they are not happy. And they are struggling and they are dealing with these things and the only way that they will find real joy and real freedom is to come to that decisive point of saying no to sin and yielding to Christ. And so here's this choice. We can offer our body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but remember, that leads to death. Or we can offer our body to God as instruments of righteousness, which leads to life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a pastor, British pastor, illustrated this change in this way. He used the analogy of two fields, and he said, I want you to think of a typical British country field with the stone fences in between. And imagine a stone fence, though, that is so high that you can't climb over it. And one field is a field dominated by sin and by Satan. That's the field into which we were born. 
And Satan was that cruel taskmaster in our life, and we choose to follow the way of the world, and we live by his rules, and we felt that bondage and slavery. The day we met Christ, it's as though God picked us up from that field, and he put us in this adjacent field, one in which we have a new Lord, a new master, and freedom to live in Christ, to grow in holiness and righteousness and truth. And in that new field, sometimes we still hear the voice of that old master. And sometimes we respond to that and we follow his voice. But we don't have to. Because a decisive change has taken place in our relationship to God. And the way that we overcome sin is by moving away from that wall and moving closer to Jesus Christ. The more we are in the Word, the more we hear His voice, the more we choose to delight in Christ, the fainter that old voice grows in our life. And we are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The conclusion, what is Paul saying in this passage of Scripture? Number one, we need to know the truth. We need to know the truth about our relationship with Christ, our relationship with the world, our relationship with sin and the devil, and what has happened. And it is the truth that will set us free. And Scripture says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And you will never, no never, want to go back to that old way of life again. And secondly, we need to consider the truth Consider it so and act on it. Or believe it and act on it. And live out this new freedom we have. And thirdly, we need to yield our life to Christ every day. If you were in the book of Ephesians, the Scripture says be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually filled. If you were in the book of Galatians, it would say live by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. All of those are saying the very same thing. Yield to Christ. Let the Holy Spirit work in you, empower you, and change you. Is that truth true of your life today? You know, when I was growing as a young Christian, someone taught me this whole principle of spiritual breathing. Whenever I was aware of sin in my life, to immediately acknowledge that to God and say, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And that's kind of like exhaling and getting that out. And the idea of inhaling was to say and remind myself once again, Jesus, I yield myself to You. I want You to fill me with Your Holy Spirit. I want to take that in. And I would do that as a habit over and over again to remind me of this principle, that it is Christ who lives in me, and it is Christ who will make the difference in my life. Let's pray. Father, as we come to You today, we thank You for the power of the Gospel and the power of Christ that changes lives. Lord, some who are here today may not be experiencing that. Some of us may be still struggling with things in our life for far too long. And we long to be set free. God, would You help us? We confess to You our sin. And You might want to name it in Your own heart right now, whatever it is that You are struggling with. Say, Jesus, forgive me. That's wrong, and I want to turn from it. And Jesus, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? Would you empower me? I want 
you to be on the throne of my life. And I yield my body to you as an instrument of righteousness today. Jesus would be pleased with that. And He will be the Lord on your throne in your life. And He will lead you and guide you. We pray this all in His name. Amen.